What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Apologia TV. You guys can get more of the episodes at ApologiaRadio.com, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A, Radio.com. That's where you go to get all of our past episodes. You can get uh, the after shows we've done, the pastors on the couch. You can also get Apologia Academy, where we train you guys in theology and apologetics, the defense of the faith. It's all over at ApologiaRadio.com. I'm in the studio today, Christmas-y, Christmas-y studio. Yes, sir. With our wonderful tree. You can maybe see some of the lights going on over here with the bear. What up? And that's Luke Pearson over there. And this is the lady, Rebecca Martin. Hey. I'm Jeff Durbin. And uh, here we go. This is going to be an exciting show. We're going to talk about the law of God. Um, Not a subject that the modern evangelical, um, I think, maybe has studied a lot of in terms of the history of the law of God in the Christian church and in culture. And uh, even perhaps uh, the modern evangelical may not have studied uh, the law of God just in general, the Old Testament. Um, I think if you ask the modern evangelical, have you read the Bible? I think they'll say, well, yeah, I've read the Bible. Mm -hmm. How much have the Bible have you read? What have you read? And I think we spend a lot of our time in the New Testament, which, of course, we should be doing. But we don't always understand the framework and the context of the Old Testament. We don't understand what the laws of God necessarily meant, what they were pointing to. And so we thought we would have on one of our good friends and uh, pretty much an expert in the area of the law of God. Uh, He is the president. Now the president. That's big time. The president. Uh, it was Gary DeMar, mm-hmm. uh, who's also a hero of the faith and a friend of our ministry. Uncle Gary. Uh, Uncle Gary. Uh, but uh, now it is Joel McDermott, doctor. Yes, sir. Dr. Joel McDermott, who recently actually took the stage at a conference right after Ted Cruz. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's pretty sweet. So, Joel, welcome back to the show, brother. Thanks, man. Great to be back. Yes, we've had Joel on a bunch of times before. You can go to ApologiaRadio.com, get those past episodes where we've had Joel on. Joel, we wanted to have you on today to talk about this new book uh, that American Vision uh, has out. And it's actually old, uh, but it's new, new for you guys. You guys just put this thing out. It's edited by you. It's a book by Johannes Piscator called Disputations on the Judicial Laws of Moses. Joel, can you tell us why... Would you want to have this book in our hands? Well, this book is got, gives some of the most concise arguments in favor of the law of God and civil society that really have ever been given. Now, of course, we know Rush Dooney and Bonson North have written volumes upon volumes. And what, uh, Jim, I found in this book was basically taking all the arguments we've made in favor of God's law over the past 40 or 50 years and condense them into really about 40 or 50 pages of argumentation. Hmm. Well, here's okay, okay, but but here's the weird thing we got to start with right away. This is going yeah. on national television. The modern evangelical is now watching this now and they're hearing you talk about the law of God and culture and society and it's this kind of weird, Joel. Are are you saying that the law of God is in some way a means of salvation that it needs to be in culture and society because it's somehow going to save society? Well, it you're already kind of jumping ahead here because, you know, you look at this book and not only does Piscator defend these theses, he, he, he defends it against objections, 22 objections, and one of them is this idea that we're using the law for salvation. Okay. Of course, we've never meant that. The point has always been that the law is there as a standard of behavior, a standard of righteousness, and that applies to righteousness in society when it comes to justice between men, justice between man and man, between man and institution. Those are God's standards. Instead of man's standards, we ought to be following God's standards. Piscator lays that out uh, and did so as early as 1607. Now, what's interesting about this book is that it has never been translated into English before. Oh, wow. But it has had influence upon our English judicial system through the Westminster Confession of Faith, through the New England Puritan settlements, because they read the Latin and put it into practice. And it's only now that we're going back and finding the roots of some of their formulations of theology in Johannes Piscator and brought it into English for the first time for people to read for themselves. Okay, so this would be good, too, um, as we discuss the book and some of the objections that are given and then Piscator's answers. This would be good because I think it was really helpful in the beginning of the book to give the explanation. Who was Johannes Piscator? Sure, it's, uh, he's one of those lost guys that really needed to be brought back and given his rightful place in history. Uh, Johannes Fisher was his original name, but as they Latinized everybody's name back then, 
piscator is merely the Latin word for fisher or fisherman. Hmm. And so he's known to posterity as piscator. He was an early reformer, but not among the first generation. We know about Martin Luther. We know about John Calvin and some of those other guys of that first generation. We don't know very much at all about the second and third generations that came along. Piscator was somewhere in between the second and third generation. He was influenced by guys who knew Calvin directly. He was there at the formation of the Heidelberg Catechism before they kicked all the Calvinists out of Heidelberg and made it a Lutheran town. <laughs> and uh, he eventually landed in a town called uh, uh, Heborn, uh, I believe, in Nassau. And they'd started a new academy there that was friendly to Calvinists. And he spent 40 years teaching there, influencing men in government and in uh, noble, ranks of nobility throughout the country, uh, throughout Europe, actually. People came from Europe, all over Europe, to listen to him lecture and to study under him. And he had hundreds of disciples in his lifetime. His work was so voluminous that in the, uh, uh, the German journals that I had to read to get some of his history, which is very obscure, uh, it took 14 pages just to list all the works that he had written, over wow. 100 titles. Wow. wow. And the people that he influenced in his lifetime uh, spans the entire register of known theologians at the time, virtually some of the most prominent men in the, in the world, and even into the prominent members of the Westminster Assembly, such as George Gillespie and others, uh, as well as, uh, like I said earlier, Puritans in New England. So uh, you can go to a man like John Gill, the famous Reformed Baptist, a prolific man, a predecessor to Charles Spurgeon's pulpit. And, uh, you know, no one was considered more learned than, than uh, Gill was. Well, you go to Gill's commentaries, you will find hundreds upon hundreds of references to Johannes Piscator. Huh. Because yeah. he was reading and studying Piscator's work to get many of his ideas. Nice. So it gives you a sense of how important this guy was, but since he belongs to that second or third generation of reformers that was kind of scholastic and didn't, uh, didn't uh, get all the accolades as Luther and Calvin did, he's kind of been forgotten to history. And that's why I've been so excited about this book to bring it back and kind of give him his place back. Excellent. So we're going to be right back, guys. More with uh, Joel McDermott with the American Vision. You can get him at AmericanVision.com. Pick up a copy of this book. We're going to describe some of the content of this book and unpack it a bit for you guys right here on Apologia TV with the lady, the bear, and me, the ninja. Get more at ApologiaRadio.com. Hi, this is Warner with Apologia Radio. I want to ask for y'all good friends of ours to go on and click that button there and become my friends on the book face. Facebook backslash Apologia Radio. Become my friend on YouTube. That there uh, twerker. The twerker. I want to talk to you on the twerking. And send me out a twerk. What? Wait, what? Twitter. Apologia Radio on Twitter. I also want to tell you we talk about apologetics and theology and we do a lot of swing dancing and we make a delicious chicken gravy. ApologetRadio.com So this is an important uh, discussion to be had. Uh, we live in a culture today, in a time today, where we are coming, folding in upon ourselves, and we have uncontrolled spending, we have government programs that are really, really unbiblical, ungodly, and uh, we're weighed down in, in a culture that has abandoned the law of God as a standard. We really have a history in America of Christians coming over and really seeing all of life to the glory of God and really looking to the law of God as a standard of justice and righteousness in a society. And we've really now in today's generation abandoned all of that. I mean, it's been a long time coming, but we really abandoned all of that. And the, the really cool thing about what's happening now, I think in Christian communities across the nation is people are looking at, at, at their presuppositions and their worldview and they're saying, are we consistent? And what kind of world are we handing to our children and to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren? We're actually starting to pay attention now and so I think it's important for us to have this discussion uh, Joel why do you think that this particular book is so good 
and so important because you have a lot of options um, and a lot of things at your disposal uh, that you can recommend to Christians to get. Why this book in particular? Obviously, we know he had uh, some pretty stellar credentials, and, and he obviously influenced some, some pretty powerful um, uh, giants of the faith. But why this particular book? Well, there's a lot of good answers to that question, and one of them, as I mentioned earlier, is it's such a condensed version of a lot of information. Yes. You don't have to read 10,000 pages of you know, Christian Reconstruction literature or whatever to, to find out commentaries on the law of God or, or, or find out your position on it. Piscator condenses it in very, very concise arguments and covers a lot of ground in a very short time. So that helps people you know, not spend a lot of time deciding. But also because since the Christian Reconstruction movement began several years, several decades ago, there's been a lot of discussion about, is this a new thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any groundwork for this? Why, why, do we, why don't we see this in other reformers? And the truth is, we do. What Piscator proves to us is we do see that from, uh, from very early generations of the Reformation. We see it influencing the formation of the language, for example, in the Westminster Confession on the law of God which a lot of people in modern times have taken to mean the civil law and judicial laws were abrogated. And they haven't had the context for the argumentation that, that built that language. Now that we supply it with Johannes Piscator and a few other fellows, we find out, well, this is a much more nuanced view than what we knew before. These laws really should apply to us today, and we really should take God's standards of justice seriously. And Just for example, when you take his opening argument in the book, uh, he's talking about this is a a way to bind the the behavior of magistrates and princes so that they don't impose whatever laws and punishments they want to come up with. Right. God has given them standards that bind them to certain uh, uh, punishments, and you shall go this far and no further. And if you go further than that, then we begin to say, no, it's the government that's out of bounds and not the people. So what you begin to see here from the beginning with God's law is the things that made America great from day one, and that is we don't put up with an unjust government. Mm. We, the people reserve the right to secede and establish a new government, or we, we reserve the right to have a lesser magistrate to stand in the gap between us and an unjust government. And you, you see this cited directly in the history of jurisprudence that led up to the American uh, War of Independence. Yes. So, I take this very seriously, and when we come to a day and age where we've forgotten God's standards of justice in civil society, or even that God had standards for civil society, and then we look at our society and see of all the things going wrong, you know, just the latest tip of the iceberg is uh, uh, the Obergefell decision being rammed down our throats by a tyrannical federal court. And because of that, people are beginning, like you said just a while ago, beginning to ask questions. Why or why, why are we tolerating this? Why is this happening? What can we do about it? And people who are versed in the law of God begin to say, no, we have got a God-given right to stand up and say, that will not be law in this jurisdiction. And we do that through our local governments, through our lesser magistrates, and through other means. But the fact that we have God pronouncing upon issues like this gives us the ultimate foundation by which we can move forward and oppose ungodly governments. I think this is an important thing to develop for a moment, Joel, because, again, this might be new territory for a lot of viewers uh, talking about the law of God as the standard. Now, that obviously wasn't a foreign concept uh, to our forebears, to those who came over here and established a civilization to the glory of God and openly professed Jesus as Lord over the judiciary. Um, but we should lay, lay something down before we get into the discussion of the book and answering objections. Um, I, let's say someone says to you, Joel, I thought that the law of God is, is over now, that Jesus fulfilled that, it's mm-hmm. over now, we don't look to that any longer as, as, as a standard for society. God's not concerned with his law and justice in society today. He's just concerned about people going to heaven and believing in Jesus. What would you say to somebody that gave you that objection? Well, I would say read what Jesus said. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of times people's uh, opinions like that are formed by more, more, I should say, are formed more by rumors or common sayings. 
you know, the way people say, don't judge, because that's what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, if you understand the context of the rest of what he said, that's not what he was saying. And the same is true with God's law. The Sermon on the Mount was not Jesus giving a new set of nice moral guides to live by. It was him preaching the law of God <laughs> yes. down the line. Yes. He goes essentially right down the second table of the law and applies it and upholds some of the judicial case laws. So when we study Jesus and when we study the epistles, uh, uh, particularly Paul in First Timothy, when we study this, we see them constantly appealing to the goodness and the justness of God's law and that we should not be looking to it as a means of salvation because no man can earn his righteousness. That's right. But we should be looking to it as a standard of behavior. That's we right. We should be looking to it as a standard by which we judge good and evil in society. Right. And Piscator picks up all of these arguments and outlines them in chapter by chapter, very short chapters, by the way, very easy to get through, uh, and giving you a view of the law of God that makes sense. Because, think about it, if we toss out the law of God when Jesus comes, you have to toss out all of it. I mean, what about, what about sin in general? What about stealing? What about murder? What about rape? Um, do we just let these things go? Well, of course not. Paul says in Romans 13 that the civil magistrate must punish evil. That's right. But and, in doing yeah. so, he calls that civil magistrate God's servant. That's right. And as God's servant, uh, who's good and evil is he going to enforce? His own? Does Caesar get to make up his own rules? Well, now we're right back to Obergefell. That's right. That's exactly right. When we call him God's servant, when the text calls him God's servant, it is expecting him to be a servant who who enforces God's will, that is, God's revealed Mm. law. That's powerful. There's this intimate connection between the civil magistrate in Scripture and the law of God in Scripture, and you can't break the two without destroying uh, everything about each one of them. That's right. So quickly, you do see in Scripture, Joel, um, you do see the apostles actually upholding God's law and his standards post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, that they actually talk about the law of God as relevant and continuing in in the New Covenant. You do see that in the New Testament. Uh, nah, not only do I see that, but I see that as the fundamental aspect of it. In, okay. in Hebrews chapter 8, when the writer reiterates Ezekiel's famous prophecy, or Jeremiah's, I'm sorry, prophecy about the new covenant that was to come, it is a covenant that is based on God's law. And he says, it's not like the old covenant that they broke, but it's a new covenant in which I will write my law in their hearts. Yes. Well, you see, the thing that changes between the Testaments, therefore, is not getting rid of the law but rather the way in which God administers the law to his people. That's right. And expects them to obey it. And again, like you said, Paul, uh, the other epistles, James is very strong on God's law, calling it not just God's law, but the law of liberty. You know, again, Mm -hmm. this goes back to this concept of restraining injustice in the land, whether it's among the criminals and and the people or the magistrates themselves. That's powerful. Law of liberty. Wonderful. Joel, Joel, we're going to come right back and do more on this discussion. Another discussion, we're going to start to unpack the book, then we're going to have an after show where we do even more. I want to encourage you guys to go check out missionalware.com. Missionalware.com. Luke's wearing a fancy shirt from them right now. Go there, pick up some stuff from them. They support the life and work of Apologia Church. We'd love for you to get some stuff from them. Be right back with Joel McDermott on Apologia TV. You know, it really is, I think, at times, a jolt. For the modern evangelical to really see, um, when, when you see your traditions, because we yeah. all have them, yep. uh, when you see your traditions uh, start to fall apart, um, you know, we're talking about the law of God. And, and oftentimes the thing that immediately comes to mind as Christians is that we are not under law, but under grace. And, and we want to say to that, yay and amen. Absolutely yeah. not under law, not under grace. We're not under the condemning aspects of the law. We're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. We're not under the curse of the law. So that's all true. We're in, in, in grace. But we also recognize in Romans 3.31, Paul asked the question that through this faith that we're justified in Christ, uh, through this faith, do we make void the law of God? And he says, no. And he says, we actually establish the law. That's new covenant. And so it's, it's oftentimes a jolt to, to see, wait a minute, God actually does care um, currently about his law 
now in the new covenant that actually it's a relevant thing to look at God's standards of justice and righteousness mm-hmm. in a society and to say those are God's standards right. and he expects people to uphold his standards in society. I want to just point people to one thing and you guys can, can, can go look at it later in Isaiah chapter 42 that one of the things the Messiah was promised to do in the world in his kingdom one of the things he was promised to do was to bring justice, to establish justice in the earth, and that he would not stop until he did it. Uh, he would establish justice, and we know that when God uh, talks about justice, he is talking about his standards of justice, not subjective standards of justice or pagan standards of justice. And so I think this book is excellent. And you're right, Joel, one of the things that I think... Um, I like the most about it is that it's almost like a tract you can hand mm. out to somebody. Uh, it's a very, very small book. You can see that right there. It's, it's a very small book. It's easy to read. Uh, it's simple. It's punchy. And it's, it's potent. It's powerful. So let's talk about it. Uh, Joel, let's go through some of these arguments. What do you think, uh, just for the purpose of our show, what do you think are some of the important arguments we need to touch? The objections that Piscator um, actually begins to address. Well, one of the most interesting arguments, now I, w- I was surprised to see all of the classic arguments for God's law that over the past several decades have been written at length in, in large tracts and volumes, and in, in particular, Bonson's defense of Matthew 5.17, the abiding validity of the law. Um, also, the argument that I thought I had formulated, I, I hadn't seen anyone else come up with it, was that you know what God <laughs> says is just is just, and if you depart from that, and say that another punishment for a crime in society is just, then you are defying God and calling his standards unjust. Hmm. Yes. And, and you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that in Piscator, 400 plus years before, I, you know, I, I wrote it down. Now, but one of the most interesting arguments in the lot is his ref, referring to the magistrate's conscience. And this is very subtle but it's very strongly New Testament, and it's also very applicable today. When the magistrate has to do his duty, he has to enforce the law. But as a Christian, if that man is a Christian, whose law must he enforce? Ultimately, he must obey God rather than men. And if he's in a position that he has to enforce an ungodly law, that magistrate has to make a decision. He has to make a decision, am I going to enforce this unjust law? You know, for example, hmm. uh, uh, defending abortionists' mm-hmm. rights. Yes. You know, these are very hairy issues, but they're very real issues. Or am I going to uphold God's law and say, no, I can't do that? Now, there's a very difficult, this is especially difficult with military and police issues. Yes, that's Policemen right. Policemen have to impose laws like this all the time and enforce them. They have to haul away people in handcuffs all the time for various reasons. If they stand up and say, I will not do this because of my Christian conscience, what's going to happen to them? Well, they could get fired. They could get reassigned. They could become a pariah among the Brotherhood of Police, which is kind of an informal union, if you will. Uh, There are a variety of consequences for a person like this. And so when Piscator brings this up, he's getting down to the heart of Christian faith, I believe, that if you're in a position of authority in the civil government, your job is to impose force on people. You know, threats of fines, imprisonment, beatings, and death if necessary. And if you are doing those things based on ungodly laws and calling yourself a Christian, you need to examine your conscience. Hmm. So I thought this was a very powerful way of speaking truth to power, if you will, and driving that point home about God's law. I think there's two in here that are that are pretty common. I think it'd be good to address quickly in the short time we have. We'll do more in the after show. There's two more. There's there's must we become Jews first? And and these were back to back in the book. And number ten was Jewish legislation ended with Christ's advent. So those two must we become Jews first? And uh, ten is the Jewish legislation ended with Christ's coming. These are objections he's re- re- uh, responding to, of course. Now the must we become Jews first? It struck me because I heard that argument in the aftermath of the debate with Hall last spring, and it came from a fairly well-known apologist. Uh, and when I saw this anticipated in Piscator, I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, but, you know, he 
if you go through the arguments he developed, he's basically saying in the judicial laws of the Old Testament, there are some of them that pertained only to Israel. Some of them that have ceremonial aspects that right, are right. only to Israel in their time. But yet there's another part that is general, moral, and applies forever when it comes to the punishments of crime and things of that nature. And so when you ask, must we become Jews first? Well, of course we don't. And we don't call for that. We don't call for new temple right. sacrifices. We don't call for dietary laws. We don't call for a whole host of things to be imposed on society that were only ever meant to be typological with the Old Testament nation. That's right. Uh, nevertheless, there is a strand of moral element that runs throughout the judicial laws that punishments must fit the crime, and God shows us how those punishments must fit the crime. And those we, don't, we, those we do follow specifically because they're not Jewish only. They were in the Jewish code, but it's because they're part of God's eternal law, God's eternal character, as, it's, as it should be reflected in society. Yes. So, no, we don't become Jews first, you know, any more than they did in Acts 15. And, and let's. He anticipates the Acts 15. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to continue the discussion, guys. It's going to happen at ApologiaRadio.com for all of our all-access partners. ApologiaRadio.com. We're going to have more with Joel McDermott, the president of the American Vision on the Law of God in this wonderful book by Johannes Piscator, Disputations on the Judicial Law of Moses. You can get more from Joel McDermott at AmericanVision.com, but head over to ApologiaRadio.com for the after show. We're going to have more there in just a moment, so come check us out, ApologiaRadio.com. That's been Luke the Bear. Peace out. And uh, the lady. We'll see you in the after show. In the after show, we're going to have a little more time, a little more freedom. We're all going to participate in the discussion. We'll see you guys there. So I apologize. You you get a lot of that from Apologia Radio. We're big fans of uh, Christmas. Christmas time. And... uh, Indeed. And so that's just what you're going to get every year around this time is we get, uh, we get happy, we get excited, we get joyful about Christmas time and celebrating uh, God becoming a man to come and rescue us from our sins, uh, to wa- wash us and to free us. Uh, back now in the after show, thank you guys for joining us and thank you guys all for being partners in ministry with us. If you're watching this right now, you're part of our all access and so we're grateful for you guys. Thank you guys very, very much. So we're going to continue the conversation with Joel McDermott, president of uh, the American Vision. You can actually get him at AmericanVision.org. That's where you go to get all the content. You guys get great blog posts and articles there and uh, really, really uh, fantastic uh, books and and uh, resources. So back with the lady in the bed. There, and uh, let's get into it, guys. Luke, I'm going to let you uh, kind of lead the conversation. Okay, so the question I have, which I know the answer to, but um, the number one probably uh, objection we hear when we start talking about the law of God is, well, you just want to gather up all the homosexuals and all the adulterers and bring them in the street and stone them. Is that what this book is trying to say? Uh, well, no. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> like that, actually. Uh, again, what I mainly, what I tried to point out earlier is that the law of God actually puts more constraints on the government right. than it does by, uh, you know, turning it into a tyranny. Great point. And that's important because there are some people who advocate returning to a form of uh, ecclesiocentric government that talks about the law of God, uses the word theonomy, but doesn't have the same view of it that we do. And it's, it's really more part of the old Constantinian a system that produced the Inquisition, and I, I fear that greatly. Yes. <laughs> I don't want the government to have any kind of power like that. Right. Um, but, but when it comes to the law of God, the important parts to realize, and this is, a, this is a discussion we could have for quite a while, actually. I did a lecture at, I was privileged to do a lecture at the uh, Christian Legal Society at Georgia State University Law School uh, about a month or two ago. And what I did was a fairly detailed talk on the history of the Fifth Amendment, the right to remain silent, you know, and people, Christians, have no idea how important that right is, not just for criminals and people who've done something wrong, but for everyone, always, all the time. And that stems directly out of biblical law and the uh, Deuteronomic laws for witnesses. And in fact, when the rabbis in the Middle Ages developed that actually earlier than that than the middle ages but when when they developed those laws 
they came out with even more strict rights than what we have in our Constitution. Hmm. That you're not even allowed to testify uh, as a defense witness in a criminal case. Right. So yeah. No possibility whatsoever of self-incrimination. So uh, anyway, these are things I got to talk about based on biblical law. And I said, look, I've got a list of things here. The separation of church and state comes out of Hebrew law. That's that right. did not exist anywhere else in the world in history. It, uh, the, the concept that we should be ruled by the consent of the governed comes out of Hebrew law. They didn't just have the law of God dropped on their heads. They had to ratify it and say, yes, we will. Yeah. The concept of an elected representative government comes out of Hebrew law. Okay. I could go down the list showing the rights. Private property comes out of Hebrew law. It goes down everything that we hold dear about our American system and way of life, historically speaking. Pretty much every bit of it comes out of Hebrew law. And we have completely lost that connection because we've been taught in our schools and universities that all of these things were developed by the Enlightenment. And in reality, what the Enlightenment led to was uh, things like the October revolution in uh, um, uh, Russia, in the Soviet Union. Yes. Enlightenment led to the, the liberal tyrannies and the progressive tyrannies we have today. It led to communism, the forms of socialism. It led to more tyranny and bloodshed in the 20th century than the entire history of the world combined before that ever mm, saw. That's powerful. And so, Joel, one of the things that we are not arguing for, and this needs to be stated very clearly, is we're not arguing for what some people have called an ecclesiocracy, where the, the, the church is essentially running the government. And that, that's what we're saying. That's forbidden by Scripture. The Bible actually um, denies that sort of a thing as appropriate or just. And so it, it really is ultimately Calvinism that uh, crystallized that thought. And it's what the Puritans brought over, the distinction between the church and the state, the separation between the church and the state. But what we also don't mean, and, and Joel, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, is we don't want to say that there should be a separation of God and state. Uh, so while there is a biblical distinction between church and state, there should not be a separation of God and state. Well, and, and I'll go even further than that, is there cannot be a separation of God and state. That's right. Your state is a reflection of your personal religion or the prevailing religion mm-hmm. of society. And so whatever makes that law is de facto your God. It may not be the God of the Bible, it, but turning humanism and secular humanism into the ultimate system. Uh, source of law is to make man your God. And so you can't escape that. I always tell people, you, yes, you, we have to separate church and state, but you cannot separate religion and state because there is always some prevailing religion, be it Christianity right. or secular humanism or something else, that is forming the basis of your secular law. You will never get away from that. It is impossible. So it's a matter of choosing what God we want that has the most glorious law. And, of course, God tells us in Scripture that was always the Hebrew Republic. He tells us that they were to be a city on a hill, so to speak, uh, inspiring all the other nations. That's uh, right. In fact, and, and a lot of times we quote Deuteronomy 4 to that point, and we forget that it was renewed by Solomon in First Kings chapter 8 when they built the Solomonic Temple. And he stands up and says this magnificent long prayer of dedication And in the midst of that, he basically says, God, we want this to be a house of prayer for all nations. And we want people, strangers and aliens from all nations, to stream here because they see God's name being exalted. That's right. And basically his justice being upheld. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, right, we don't want the church. And and again, that that is a concept directly out of the Old Testament. The, the separation of the ecclesiastical order and the priests was completely separated from the civil order and the establishment of civil justice in the land, which was done by elected juries of the people, not the priesthood. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, there, there is one tiny exception to that, and it wasn't a confusion of the institutions, but it was in the Israeli Supreme Court, the high priest and some of the other priests were allowed to sit as judges in those cases. But that was not a confusion of the, of the offices so much as it was one person fulfilling two roles. So, um, the, absolutely, separation of church and state comes out of 
uh, Hebrew thought, and we want to maintain it because it's a God-given distinction and it's important. Well, it was really cool. Um, there was a, I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca here in a second, but there's a really great debate I encourage everyone to go listen to. It's uh, between Douglas Wilson and Dan Barker, who is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. It's available on YouTube. Just uh, search for Douglas Wilson, Dan Barker, and uh, the let's see here what's the title of the debate it was should religion and uh government government be strictly separate i think is what it was uh but it was really interesting because while dan barker is trying to argue for this point which he really has no ground uh, as an atheist to do uh, one of the points that uh, wilson made was just on this point about the separation of church and state he said that distinction is really a gift uh to you to america from calvinism he said so behalf on, on behalf of Calvinists worldwide, he says, you're welcome. Uh, and, uh, of course, when, when an atheist says separation of church and state, they do not mean right. what historically we have meant by separation of church and state. It's really a Christian distinction to be made. It has really come to mean separation of God and state, uh, which is really uh, historically inaccurate uh, and biblically, of course, um, uh, unwarranted and um, something that we need to really uh, object to the idea of separation of God and state. So, Rebecca? Yeah, no, I was just thinking about as we're talking about separation of church and state, that we see a place in our history where we have separated so far from the law of God. Now we have laws that are immoral. And so the people that speak out against those are now seen as the immoral ones. We have laws that are immoral. The people who speak out for God's law are immoral. You know, we have little uh, we have we have people now that uh, are trying to have laws where not only gay mirage, but uh, abortion on demand. So we're murdering our own children um, and things like uh, older men going into little girls bathrooms. So really, we're at the precipice where we have almost total separation from God's law. What would you say to the Christian out there? Um, as far as what is the pathway to get back to where we can implement this, um, mm. you know, on a small scale to a large scale. And I know this much of this is spreading the gospel message because that changes the hearts of men. But what would you say is the pathway back to getting to where we have the reflection of God's laws in our in our uh, in our society? I think uh, I think Joel wrote a whole book on that, didn't you, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> I just say that. Um, uh, this is a topic I've spent considerable time on in Restoring America one county at a time. And I think uh, right now the easiest way to get it across to people is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Interposition, uh, nullification, the, the idea that when a federal government passes such a tyrannical law that a state government, a state legislature, or even local governments can stand up and say, that is not a law. We do not recognize that law. It defies everything we know as law. Our people do not support that law, and we're going to stand up in support and defense of our people. And, of course, the most noteworthy case that we've seen of that in the news is the Kim Davis case. Yes. Where she did stand up and do this, and, right. and I fully supported her, and I, I called with all of my might in my little corner of the world to say every local government in the state of Kentucky and across this country ought to be doing the same thing. Mm. And there are a few did. Now we're beginning to see these kinds of lawful resistance movements being done uh, in some state legislatures on various issues. And what I tell people to do, because the moment we begin to think resisting the federal government, we think that's just un, unchristian, we can't do that, it's, it's sedition, it's anarchy. I want you to step back for a moment and think. Because the, other, the side story to this is also that the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Everything is just not as good as it used to be. But if you stop and focus where these bad laws are coming from, they're coming from centralized agencies, and they're being forced down our throats, and we don't have, have until now, I have not revived the mechanism to deal with it. So I ask people, step back and look at any of the election maps uh, from a, a popular election, presidential election. You will see some red states. You will see some blue states. I want you to follow that. And these are all available online, by the way. You can look at those maps at the county level. And when you do, I mean, it's good enough to see that there's usually more than half red states to begin with. Okay, people who have a, very, a generally conservative disposition shaped by our Christian culture. When you look at those maps at the county level, it completely changes. Hmm. Most of those blue states are only blue because of major city areas. 
the state of Illinois is completely overrun, overruled by what happens in Chicago. Hmm. The vast majority of the rest of the state is red counties. The same thing is true in California. It's true to an extent in New York. And it's true in Florida. It's true across, across the country. Yeah. And if local governments and local Christians and local churches would organize and begin to realize that we are still in the vast majority on most of these issues, we could have resistance movements popping up by the hundreds and even by the thousands because there are over 3,000 counties in this nation. Hmm. We could have local resistance movements leading state-level resistance movements across this country if Christians would simply get it through their heads that we have to stand up for the law of God and... If, if it, I think in this society, we can still take things back. And even if we don't, be willing to go to jail for doing it. Hmm. And that's a tall order. It is. But if you look back at some of the, the, the great cases that have been won, uh, that's what happened. People either stood up and won the argument, or they stood up and went to jail for it, and then sometimes won the argument that way. Yeah. Uh, we're still fighting abortion through this means. Yes. And, yeah. And, and so, so it didn't work in that case, but it's because we, we took a national level route to it, about it instead of a local route. So I'm thinking there is a lot we can do, but we've got to get the word out. And this is where I'm uh, preaching to the pulpits. And this is why we did the Alice Baldwin book on the New England pulpit and the American Revolution. Excellent book. Because it really was the preaching of these principles, these biblical law principles from the pulpits that inspired Christians to wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, these are Bible issues, these are civil rights issues, they're God-given rights and privileges, and we shouldn't stand and watch a government take them away right. from us. Let's resist it. Yeah. And we need to do that once again. And, and if Christians are going to be the ones to do it, it's going to have to start in the pulpits and in the parachurch ministries getting the word out to them. Yes, yeah, that was an excellent book. And it's called, isn't it called, Joel, the New England Pulpit? New England Pulpit and the American Revolution. That's right. It's, it's a really powerful book. Highly recommend that to you guys. You can get it at American Vision. It's excellent. Um, very informative. Uh, it's, it's a joy to read. Uh, it's a good book because it does show the history of our nation and that what led up to the, revolu- the, the war for independence, what led up to that was a lot of Christian preaching from the pulpits that talked about the law of God, our rights as, as creatures of God. And so, so listen, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just a bunch of people that said, hey, let's, 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 fight, a, let's fight another right. government. Let's go to war. It was Christians and people who had been influenced by Christian thought and biblical teaching uh, that had so had within them rooted uh, the the essential parts and pieces of the law of God that they understood what was wicked, they understood what was tyranny, and they understood their rights um, as creations, as creatures of God, as image bearers, to stand against such tyranny. And that's really what gave them the strength to, to do that kind of fight. Uh, that's a fantastic book. Um, I actually was just looking at that the other day. It's a great book to have in your library. I think it'll bless you guys. And it'll really, I think, uh, fill you up with a lot of uh, really worthwhile information regarding the history of our nation. Uh, but this is important, I think, Joel, to get across to people who are listening to this and, and, and they're watching now. And this is a new discussion for them. I think it's important for us to talk about something, Joel. Um, if I could just lay this down, I'd love to have you jump on to, to, to this it's the gospel, the good news of Christ and his kingdom, salvation in him, uh, that is being proclaimed. So we, we're, that, that message is going out as the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. It's what God uses right. to bring people to life and to open their eyes. It is about salvation. Now, here's the thing we miss a lot, is that the promise in the Old Testament was that Messiah would bring his kingdom and that salvation would go to the ends of the earth. Psalm 22, all the families of the earth shall return to the Lord, shall worship him. The Lord, Psalm 110.1, is going to put all of his enemies under his feet until there are a footstool for his feet. Uh, there's, there's all these promises of what God is going to do to bring redemption to the ends of the earth, to bring peace to the ends of the earth, to bring justice to the ends of the earth. So that's all there. But that gospel proclamation goes out for people to be reconciled to God. They believe in Christ. They're indwelt now by his spirit. And they have, like Joel said in the television show, now his law internalized, no longer on stone tablets outside of them, but now internalized within them with the power of the Holy Spirit of God, now as alive people, to actually do the righteous requirement of the law, which was, ready? Paul says, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. And this is really important because somebody says, 
well, I thought it's just about the gospel. That's, it's supposed to be just about the gospel. But, but that's what we're saying. Yeah. But that's what we're saying. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're saying it is about salvation, forgiveness only in Christ. But here's what we're saying is that something happens when Christ, the King, takes over your life, redeems you. Something happens within you that changes you forever. And, and if the law of God's now within us and we now have the ability in the spirit, Romans chapters eight and on to actually fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Then that means the law of God should count all the more because Jesus says the two greatest commandments are love God, love your neighbor. So watch this is a gospel conversation because it is about salvation and what takes place after that is now an internalized law that is empowered by God's spirit now within you to like live it out. And so if you say, I just think it's about loving your neighbor. I want to say, hey, welcome to Theonomy. Because that's the point. If it's about loving God and loving neighbor in the new covenant, you're now enabled to do that by God's spirit. And if you say, hey, I just want to say love God, love neighbor. I say, praise God, you just gave me the entire law and prophets. So you should love this discussion. Yeah, I'm actually uh, working on a concise introduction to Theonomy of my own currently. Excellent. Hopefully... I was hoping to get it out before Christmas. It doesn't look like I'll do that, but nevertheless, uh, and the title of it is, it's going to have a whole chapter just going through the love references in Jesus's teachings. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And you will find that as you go through them, they were always tied to his commandments. Mm-hmm. You never separate the law, the love of God from the law mm. of God. Yes. They're one and the same thing. One is summarizing the other. The other one's unpacking the, the first. And the title of the book is going to be The Bounds of Love. Because that's what the law is. It shows us what love looks like in action. Love applied in society. Yes. It's not just about feelings and emotions and compassion. I'm really glad you're doing that. How do you exercise that compassion? How do you exercise that compassion when it's in reference to a civil government? Uh, You know, that that involves love as well. We just don't think of it because people aren't hugging and kissing, you know, when they're hauled in by the cops. (laughs) But these are issues you have to... To, to address and unpack in a biblical way, not in a humanistic way, which is how we, we do it by nature. So, yeah, we definitely want to hit on those topics. And as far as the gospel and the law of God working together, uh, you can't have the gospel without the law of God being right there behind it. We don't establish the gospel on the law as far as keeping the law, but it is the other way around. And I, I always go to Ephesians 2, uh, the, the famous verse about, we're saved by grace uh, through faith that not of works, lest any man should boast. And everybody stops there and doesn't read the next verse. The next verse, yes. What are you saved for? What do you say? Well, it says, you were saved unto good works that God has before ordained that we walk in them. Yep. So you're not saved by works, but you're saved for works. And if you leave that works part off in, in an effort to keep the law out, you're keeping part of the gospel out mm. also. Yeah. Because it's what God does in the gospel. Yes. Okay, Joel, I know your time is limited, but I wanted to give everyone one more, uh, I think, important objection because it's, I think, very, very common today in uh, like New Covenant theology. And it's interesting that it's actually addressed here in this, this mm. very, very old book. So I'd love for you to address this one and tell everyone where they can get the book and uh, then we'll let you go. Uh, the objection is the judicial law no longer binds unless... It is repeated in the New Testament. Now that is that is absolutely like common today, especially from New Covenant theologians. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not binding unless the apostles pull it over from the right. Old Testament. So it's all done unless it's pulled over from the Old Testament. Talk about that. Well, uh, uh, first of all, it's not just New Covenant theology. That's classic dispensational approach to it. True. Yes. In fact, we've had that thrown at us. For years now, uh, but you know the, the simple way to go to it, the way Bonson approached it and embarrassed quite a few people was to point out, well, look, the laws against bestiality are not repeated in the New Testament. Yeah, <laughs> certain certain of the laws against incest are not repeated in the New Testament, and in fact, this was um, I'm trying to remember where I saw this last. Uh, this was actually played out in an argument that I witnessed. Uh, over a New Covenant theologian. Now, if I, you know, I recall it, it was an article we did on our website, uh, a young man named Francisco Brito. 
uh, arguing with a New Covenant theologian who came out and said, uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, incest, this particular forms of incest are now okay in the New Testament. Right. Wow. Brother could marry his sister if he wanted to. And I think that was the scenario. Hmm. And and the, the argument was, as long as you can get over the ick factor, it's perfectly legal. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I mean, it's like, what have we done? Because the truth is, there are plenty of people who've gotten over the ick factor and do this all the time. That's right. God gave us those laws for reasons. And you can go through that list and look at all of the laws that are not repeated explicitly in the New Testament. And then you can see some that are repeated that are fairly obscure case laws. And I, I just have a problem with that. Of course, now the more fundamental aspect is, again, go back to Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. <laughs> the, the foundation of the new covenant is that he's going to write his law on our heart. Well, that kind of opens it up to a fairly open question, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That's the law he's talking about. So yep. you can say it's not repeated in the New Testament. Well, the entirety of the law as a whole there is repeated in the New Testament. So now let's talk about which ones apply and which ones don't. That's right. And then what we're saying is that it's a new covenant that defines for us Absolutely which which laws have had a change of administration or God no longer has us uh, uh, to see as binding uh, because of what Christ has accomplished. We're saying the New Testament defines that. Joel, you're always a, a blessing and it's always a pleasure to have you on. Where can people go to pick up this very important work? Very simple. It's AmericanVision.org. You can go to our store and search our books and you'll find Piscator there among them. And uh, for your listeners and viewers only, we have a special discount code, Apologia. Yay! Wow. Awesome. Five bucks off. Thank See, you. It pays to be all access. Yes, sir, it yes. does. Apologia yes. listeners. Uh, you guys get discounts and all kinds of neat freebies and awesome stuff. So, Joel, we love you, brother, and we thank you, and I'm sure we're going to have you on again. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, uh, having you on and, uh, and talking about a bunch of other stuff. Great. I look forward to it, too. All right. Dr. Joel McDermott with the American Vision. Get them, guys, at AmericanVision.org. I love this discussion. Yes. It's important. We can, we can go on a long time. Yes. Yeah, it's a blessing. So I picked up this book from Joel at uh, the Bonson Conference. He had a stack of them, and so I made sure I got one and went home with it. So I started going through it, and it's really interesting. As you read through uh, these arguments against um, the law of God in culture and society today um, that Piscator talks about and he responds to, it's interesting that there, nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Um, the figure. It's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, That's why I said, I said in, the, in the introduction of the book, I mean, everything, every argument we've had and every argument against it that we've had is was anticipated in this book in the space great. of just a few pages uh, 400 years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So he's still on, but okay. So we're going to go ahead and check out now. <laughs> ApologiaRadio.com, guys. Yeah, go there. Obviously, you're, you're all access, so that's why you're watching this. But would you do us a favor, guys? Would you go and uh, let a friend know about Apologia Radio? Let them know about the all access. Let them know about this awesome content. Pick up a copy of this book. It'll bless you. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time. That's the bear. Peace out. The lady. Yeah, take care. And uh, God bless you guys. And thank you for participating with us.